I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is a special Agents of Impact podcast. And then suddenly we're at a point where you hit that inflection where the supply demand flips, and then the price, people start suddenly realizing there will be, what well, not only will be scarcity this year, but that scarcity will get worse and worse and worse. And then that really drives the prices up. That's Edwin Datsun, a venture capital and private equity investor who's been watching carbon markets around the world. The price of carbon, or rather the reduction of carbon emissions, will drive profound transformations in both financial markets and the real economy. And that price has been going up in Europe, in California, and in the voluntary markets driven by the rash of net zero pledges from major corporations. The price of carbon will be key to climate policy at this fall's COP26 climate summit in Glasgow and for years to come. Edwin Datsun has been one of Impact Alpha's guides in understanding the emerging market mechanisms and trend drivers. Let's jump right into our conversation. Hi, Edwin. Welcome to Impact Alpha's Agents of Impact podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, I've been fascinated by carbon pricing, uh, you know, with all the concern about climate change and carbon pricing has emerged as a tool in the toolkit. When you dig into it, it's a fascinating and complicated topic. And one of my guides, Edwin, has been you. So I really appreciate the education you've given me in, in carbon markets. And I want to dig in for our listeners as well. So welcome. Thanks very much. Um, you are a, a venture capital private equity investor. You've worked at Bain and Company and, and, and Wolfrock, run a European equity long short fund. Uh, let's talk, you know, strategies for playing the carbon market. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that the context came from the venture capital investing that I was doing, where a lot of the technology companies that are getting funded are in some way reducing CO2 emissions or uh, directly taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And if you're trying to put a value on those companies, you kind of need to know what the value of CO2 is. And the thing that was crazy to me was that there isn't one, right? There absolutely should be one, but at the moment there isn't one. There are, there are different carbon prices, whether you're talking about the voluntary world versus the compliance world, whether you're talking about even different regions of the same country. And that struck me as very curious because of all the thing, of all the sort of environmental problems we have, carbon is CO2 emissions and global warming is the most purely Global. Well, that's how I found you originally as well, because we were uh, nosing around and trying to understand this wide variation in the price of, of carbon between all the different schemes, as you mentioned, and trying to understand what what that would mean for actually changing behavior, either of, of carbon emitters and also of carbon, I suppose, sequesterers, whether those be soil carbon projects or forest carbon projects or or other kinds of technology that, that take carbon out of the air, direct air capture, all, all kinds of things. Um, the, w one thing that's, that's become clear this year is the price of carbon is going up. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think we should probably split the conversation into the compliance world and the voluntary world to start with. So the, the, the compliance world is one where the government is saying, if you emit CO2, then you have to present at the end of the year an allowance certificate that matches the amount that you have emitted. And if you don't, you get fined. And therefore, if you're trying to 
if you as a government are trying to reduce the year-on-year emissions of your country, then all you need to do is auction or give out fewer and fewer allowances every year. Uh, And typically what's happened is in the past has been that they have given out or auctioned off a very large number of allowances compared to the actual amount of emissions that's going on, which has kept the price extremely low. But what's happened is every year that number is kind of coming down. And then suddenly we're at a point where you hit that inflection where the supply demand flips and then the price, people start suddenly realizing there will be, what not only will be scarcity this year, but that scarcity will get worse and worse and worse. And then that really drives the prices up. So if you take the the biggest and most established liquid ETS scheme on the planet is the EU. Um, that sort of bimbled along at around sort of five or six euros as late as kind of 2017. And then as that supply demand started to flip, it suddenly starts to accelerate to the point where it's now close to 60. And predictions are for, for it to be over 100, not very far from, from now. That's the sort of broad mechanism. The one we have here is California, uh, because we ha- don't have a national market. I think we have some regional markets, um, but those prices are going up as well. Yeah, I mean, and precisely the same thing. If you look at the chart for, uh, I mean, you know, California is a, all of these schemes are, right? You know, it's it's worth saying, this is not a, none of these schemes are pure markets, right? This is not a commodity that, that exists in the ground or is limited by physical things. It is a, it is a government construct, right? So in California, if you look at the original, you know, what the original intention of the thing was and then what actually ended up getting passed by the time all the various lobbying things that had was very different. And what that tended to mean was that, again, more supply than was expected. But now, finally, the California market is, is most people are predicting that sort of mid next year, that supply demand thing will, will flip. And ahead of that, People are starting to realize that now is the time to start stockpiling because these allowances are good. There's not a there's not a vintage on them. They're good forever, basically. Um, so you've suddenly seen the price go from sort of the 14 last year, end of last year to sort of 22-ish today. With the expectation that the supply-demand curves will cross and price will go up quite sharply starting in a year or so? Yeah, but uh, you know, it's one—it's it, obviously a—it's obviously a sort of game theory point at which, as soon as you can sort of see that point coming, you start to stockpile ahead, and that brings the point at which that supply demand crosses earlier, and then that exacerbates it again. So it can—it can flip, you know, well ahead of the true actual supply demand crossing. Understood. Okay. And then and just to bring it into the conversation, the voluntary markets, which have long been derided because they are frankly voluntary, but um, with so many corporate and other net zero pledges and increased yeah. scrutiny of those commitments, there is actual demand in the voluntary markets and that's ri- driven those prices up. Yeah, those prices are going crazy. Um I mean, not, not crazy in the sense that the, the price is still radically lower than in general on average than in the in the compliance markets. But the speed of increase, I mean, if you look, they're, they're increasing sort of 10% a week in some of these markets. 
And I think one of the most interesting things around the the voluntary markets is we've sort of done everything wrong that it's possible to do wrong if you were trying to create a market with the voluntary markets. So in the first sort of iteration of these, there was a huge number of things that were created of very dubious, what they call additionality, i.e. kind of CO2 that was taken out that wouldn't otherwise be taken out. Um, and what that what that's and very poor ongoing supervision of those projects, which led to this kind of huge overhang of very low quality, very cheap offsets, which nonetheless had the same kind of rating or, or registry approval as much higher quality offsets. That had huge confusion. But I think we're sort of coming out of the other end of that now. And there are multiple efforts in multiple different markets to create much higher quality in terms of the rigor of the projects and both how exactly they're measured at birth and also through their ongoing life. So that a corporate, and we've already seen the first sort of series of stories about corporates that ran around saying they were carbon neutral because they bought offsets. And then when people started to dig into the those projects, they found that the projects had either been sold multiple times or they never really existed or they didn't produce anything like the volume of CO2 sequestration that people were claiming. So corporates have been burnt once on this already and I think are getting much better in terms of understanding what, what a true offset quality is and what the true price of that is likely to be. Carbon is a global commodity, so to speak, and yet these are very fragmented markets. Is the notion that we've heard that there's going to be a convergence between these markets, that there'll be kind of at least, you know, sort of benchmarks and trading ratios between different types of carbon offset credits? Is that uh, convergence happening? And what would that mean for the price, I guess? So there are there are multiple drivers of convergence. Uh, I don't, to be clear, I don't think we're going to have sort of one price of carbon globally fungible anytime soon. Um, but there are nonetheless big drivers of, of that will help kind of make that clarity. The, the, the proof point of that may have been Tesla, right, which re- received billions of dollars early on for for its sort of first mover electric car uh, payments, and I think sold them to other car makers, which got tired, perhaps, of <laughs> paying money to their competitor, and now have all jumped on electric vehicles themselves, obviously. And yeah, so- I mean, that was obviously not, that, that, that was obviously a sort of, not specifically a, a CO2 thing, but, but it was a kind of, they had a, you know, there was a government mandate that said X percent of your fleet has to be electric cars, right? Um, so if you didn't have them, you had to kind of buy the allowances from other companies, which is where Tesla was getting all this revenue. So it can, as you say, reward first movers and penalize late movers um, by creating a yeah. financial incentive. And the other thing it can be, it can do is is create financing for conservation and other projects that may have been marginal at, as you said, six or seven dollars a ton, but are um, uh, assuming they can get, as you said, certified under the various um, emissions uh, certifications, you know, are quite even profitable um, at 20 
50, $100 a ton, whether that's soil carbon or forest carbon or, 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 or then, as we said, even, even technology solutions around, around um, uh, carbon capture. Yeah, that's a re- that's a really interesting point. I mean, the the um, historically the compliance schemes have been have been very nervous about allowing offsets into their scheme because of the historically low quality of the offset thing. It was it was sort of the EU did it at birth and it messed it up for years. So now they've sort of said no, it's just allowances. We don't allow offsets. California lets you do offsets a little bit for certain very, very specifically allowed projects and very high quality projects. Um, it's only a very small amount. So if you emit 100, you're allowed to submit up to four in offsets of which two has to be in the state of California. Um, but what, what's, what's interesting about that is I think as the abatement gets, you know, as the price gets much higher and abatement gets more difficult, then these very high quality kind of you know carbon capture sequestration projects and things like that, which may have a uh, you know which may it may cost eighty euros to a ton to do that or more, but that still starts to become you know genuinely cost competitive with with the allowances, and I think increasingly you will see uh, ETS schemes opening up to high quality offsets, and and by the way also. Um, you will see the evolution of voluntary carbon markets uh, with with very sort of high standards uh, and the prices for those where corporations can actually know and prove that the carbon is being sequestered for a long time will get to very sort of similar pricing. Edwin, you mentioned the accountability question on on on, on credits, um, and one thing that's come up recently, of course, with the wildfires in the West here in the U.S., is that some of the forests that were pledged for these credits have gone up in smoke. So I think Microsoft has some credits um, in the in the bootleg fire, and 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 and, and BP has some credits in a, in a different fire. Um, you know, maybe the I don't know the effects of climate change are moving faster than the these solutions, slow moving solutions to climate change. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess sort of in the case of Microsoft, they are a they are a very sophisticated buyer of offsets. So I think the risk of, uh, you, you know, that some of their offsets wouldn't last as long, and they'd have to buy additional ones. I think they, I think that's well understood. Um, but it does raise a broader question, which I think is really important to try and for people to try and understand, which is. When we talk about offsets, typically we're talking about the the metric we use is a ton of CO2. And it's really the wrong metric. The real real metric is sort of ton of CO2 per year, right? There is a fundamental difference between um, buying buying a credit in a forest, which, as you say, kind of might burn down the next year, um, and pulling CO2 directly out of the atmosphere and burying it a kilometer deep in Icelandic rock, where you have sort of, you know, very, very high certainty it's going to be there for millennia, right? The price of those things is, uh, you know, the certainty of the CO2 sequestration is very different. The prices are very different. But as long as you're just talking about a ton of CO2, it's, it's hard for someone to see immediately. So there are various schemes 
and various standards that are trying to be developed that take into account this this concept of time as well as quantity uh, when figuring out what an offset does. So uh, just one example of is of that is uh, there's a firm called Puro Earth out of Finland, which has a standard called the Cork, uh, where basically the offset you have to prove as part of the diligence that it will be sequestered for at least 50 years. It's kind of a nominal time, but but at least it's kind of starting to bring in that that element of time to give corporations some sort of comfort that you know they won't have the bad headlines that these companies have just had, and that it's genuinely doing what it says it's going to do. And uh, you know the, the, that that company's just been bought by uh, by Nasdaq, but it, it, you're starting to see some of these uh, new standards developing. Okay, so you've got a steadily rising price supported, as you said, by government policy. I suppose the extent to which it's supported by government policy is one of the big question marks. Um, but you, we've seen at least China op- start to very gradually and after many delays open open its market. California market, as you said, is, is, is now functioning after, again, some fits and starts. The European market is, and I think something like 25 to 30 percent of the world's emissions are now under some kind of market. Um, uh, so you have um, rising prices, rising products, rising, I think, financialization of the whole thing in terms of, of all the broker uh, arrangements and clearing mechanisms. How do you buy low, sell high in carbon? Well, you buy now, um, I think is the obvious point, right? I mean, the the I guess the, the question is basically, if you believe what the IPCC report is saying, then the probability of keeping to a 1.5 degree warming is getting to be a very remote outside chance unless emissions get come down very quickly. And further, they say the sort of, you know, the, the, the carbon capture storage at kind of global scale is not close to being ready. And that certainly backed up the various, you know, VC investments I've, I've looked at. I don't. There are some really interesting technologies, but they're not ready to be, you know, deployable at a global scale anytime soon. So, the pricing, I think, as as comp, you know, so so we're seeing various things happening where, both at a country and a company level, accountability is starting to actually kick in. Um, so what I think that does in terms of the pricing is the ways in the past where you could fudge it either with giving out way too many allowances or fudge it by buying very low quality offsets are gone. I think that, that I think that game is over now. Uh, so I think if you can if you can take a uh, if you can take a long term view. And, and that's certainly the, the perspective that our fund is is taking that uh, and you buy very high quality, very provable assets, be those allowances in schemes that have well understood, well-defined rules or offsets where the quality of the credits can be proven and continue to be proven over the life of the thing, then I think now is an incredibly compelling time to to buy it. I mean, most of the analysis, I mean, even within the, even within the sort of the government things are talking about, you know, needing to have some sort of global price around the 150 or higher 
right? So we're now taking a situation where, and that and that's just to sort of that that's to just to hit the 1.5 uh, global warming. That's not to get to any sort of uh, major breakthrough. Um, and just to be clear, so, one hundred and fifty dollars a ton is yeah. somewhere like almost triple where it's at, as you said in 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 the European. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, the, so, it's, so, it's, so California is at twenty two, and the voluntary schemes are, you know, if you look at Corsia credits or something, they're down at three or four. And so, and so, so a lot so, of room to grow across all of those markets. Um, yeah. which would be a classic buying opportunity. I thought um, in capitalism, markets knew all and priced all and were all knowing. And so if this is so clear to you, uh, Edwin, why hasn't there been a huge rush of capital to lock up all kinds of credits at, at, at 20 or 30 or $40 a ton when we know it's going to 150 or more? Well, you don't know. Um and there have certainly been some bad experiences of, of kind of, you know, scheme changes and things which drive it. And it is a and it is a political contract, right? So it, it's not it's not risk free. I think the the reasons that financial players have not been involved that much historically is historically it's been pretty boring. So if, if you look at a lot of these charts, they've been pretty much flatlining until the last year or so. Um, it's been difficult to trade. I mean, even if you, even if you look at the the EU uh, market and everyone's talking about financial speculators getting involved and so on, the, the financial players are sort of five percent odd of the volume. Right? This is not like a commodity market that you've typically seen. Um, so the it's been quite difficult for. Uh, very large players to actually get involved in a, in a meaningful way um, outside the compliance things. And if you're trying to trade as a sort of typical commodities house with a sort of short-term volatility-based level, you're at a very big disadvantage informational-wise compared to the compliance players who are the guys who are actually turning the power stations on and off. The companies themselves, you're saying, are going to know more than the traders uh, on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite, you know. All right, well, let's let's bring this all together. You're not investigating this at a purely academic uh, exercise. You have, I think, put together plans for your own strategy around around this. And what can what can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think we we believe this convergence is happening over the longer term. Um, we think there's a very interesting opportunity to invest in ETS schemes around the world. Um, and, and whilst everyone talks about EU and California, there are many other ones that are coming up and have very interesting dynamics and, and sort of potential upside of their own. Uh, so even if you look at something like, you know, and a lot of them are changing quite rapidly. So we think that there is a, there's a huge opportunity to acquire a portfolio of these things, diversified portfolio of these things around the world both in terms of the allowances and the offsets to benefit from that, especially where we think there are drivers towards convergence, which we can sort of understand in some in some reasonable time frame. And as more of these markets become sort of better developed as financial markets, 
both on the voluntary side and the compliance side, I think that will accelerate the entrance of new players. That will create more liquidity. That will create more visibility. That will create more players. And there will be significant uh, price appreciation. That's what we're trying to do. So just if I can uh, pull it together, you think there's uh, inefficiencies in the market and and obstacles that um, knowledgeable uh, uh, experts like, like yourselves could um, could help navigate. At the same time, there's fundamental drivers pushing the price high. So, so, so get in now and 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 ride that market up. And meanwhile, maybe raise the prices so that uh, companies and and others actually knock down uh, emissions on their own. Is that about the? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, obviously we, I mean, if you had done nothing other than buy the carbon index, I a sort of weighted thing of Reggie. Uh, which is Northeast um, California and the EU, that's been doing 30% a year for the last five years, right? With with low volatility and low correlation with with equities. So that's not bad on its own. Um, but we think you can do better than that or, or as good as that it, by also investing in high quality offsets and in schemes which are at an earlier stage of their development. Precisely because when new schemes launch, they pretty much always launch with with too many allowances. And the reason for that is because um, you're really trying to get this whole system of auditing companies, allocating or auctioning allowances, netting the things off, doing the fines. That's a process. And you don't want the prices to crazily spike too high because then all your power stations turn off the next day, right? It's again difference to uh, some some of the crypto areas is this has very real and very short term uh, impacts on the electricity, the power, the steel in in a country. So you want to do that long. So I think you can you can invest early in the less liquid scheme before the futures markets are well developed, before the liquidity is there. Um, and and get outsized return for taking that lack of liquidity. So buy it when supply is uh, high and, and and demand is is low, and then and then ride it. The yeah, other I mean, ride it to net to net short. Yes, and the, and you know the problem for sort of some of the larger you know macro funds are you know you might be super excited about what's happening in New Zealand. We are super excited about what's happening in New Zealand actually, but. Um, the, the the scale of kind of you know average monthly volume of I don't know sort of three or four million credits that's that's kind of a hundred million monthly volume that's not something that the mega funds can get involved with and it's not something they can they can build a big position on so there is an advantage to being sort of smaller and and having a sort of long-term perspective well Edwin this has uh, been a great primer uh, we're going to keep it in touch as you as you as you develop the strategy and as the market develops as well and we hope you can come back and, and give us a, a an update um, sometime very soon so thank you so much for joining with us Edwin Datsun uh, who's working on a, a, a very interesting carbon um, uh, carbon fund and carbon strategy thank you Edwin it's my pleasure That's going to do it for this special Agents of Impact podcast. Read more about Edwin Datsun, carbon pricing, and climate finance at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to Edwin and to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha, 
investment news for a sustainable edge.